up on the text that we ended in the middle of last week, which was Colossians 12 through 17. We got through half of verse 15, and we are going to finish up the rest today. And I will tell you, I was tempted to just kind of, you know, flow through the verses 15 and 16 and 17 and, you know, move on. But then you start looking at it and you realize how full it is. And there's no way you can just simply skate over these verses. They are truly remarkable. And the opportunity that we would have here to look at them in detail is truly a blessing. So on your handout, I have actually placed verses 12 through 17 so you can see the context because it's a unit. Uh, The previous verses, 5 through 11, were the vices that Paul was writing about, and these are the virtues. So I'll read it real quickly so that we have at least the unified context of what we're dealing with. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So now you can see why I didn't want to gloss over this. Uh, We ended in the middle of verse 15 last week. Verse 15 was talking about the peace of Christ, this idea of who Christ is in everything is that uh, security, that knowledge that His desire for us is what's best. But the key word here that's, that's often missed is the word rule. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In other words, Christ is King. Christ is over all, he is in all and over all. And if we hold back and say, well, it's my responsibility and it's up to me, and if I'm going to rule my own life, you're not going to have peace. You're going to be forever frustrated. And if you rely on yourself, you know you're going to disappoint yourself. If you rely on another human being, you know you'll be disappointed by that human being. If you rely on an institution, that institution will fail you. If you rely on the government, well. (laughs) So what do we rely on? What do we let rule in our lives? Because so often people come to the Christian life as saying, well, it's just something we tack on and, you know, it makes you feel good for a couple hours a week. No, that's not what's being talked about. It's in everything, in all things. Have Him rule in your hearts. And then the last part of the verse, where we didn't get to last week, it ends with, and be thankful. Huh. Well, that's interesting. 
Was that a cast-off statement by Paul? Or did he write it intentionally? I think it's intentional. Especially when the word thanks or thankfulness or thank, being thankful is three more times in the ba- balance of this passage. It starts here. And be thankful. It's a present imperative, meaning to keep on becoming thankful. Aaron White, in an article for the Center for Pastor, Pastor Theologians, yes, there is such an organization, uh, in fact, this is one piece of a large series of articles called The Theology of Gratitude, which is fascinating to have these teacher scholars writing to pastor theologians saying, let's look at the theology of gratitude in Scripture, in all of Scripture. But he pulls out in this one uh, article he wrote, he said, in a divided and deeply confused world, As Jesus' followers, we must be known as those who return praise to God with thankful hearts in all circumstances. Hmm. So here, and in Ephesians 5.20, where it says, give thanks always, and in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where it says, give thanks in all things, Paul is over and over and over again, exhorting the church and the faithful to be thankful. We tend to say we only need to think about thankfulness at one time of the year. The end of Thanksgiving, because Abraham Lincoln made it so, so we have to follow what he said, because he knows best. Why is that? We, we kind of reserve all of our thankfulness. We only sing the Thanksgiving songs. At Thanksgiving, maybe we should be singing those today. I mean, do we forget about that? Yes. It's also interesting to note that the word charis, or um, grace, is sometimes translated as the word thankful, which you find at the end of verse 16 but not here, at the beginning, or at the end of verse 15, or at the end of verse 17. Here, it is the word eucharizo, or eucharist. You hear the word eucharist if you have Catholic background. The mass is considered the eucharist. It's just the Greek word for thankfulness, or being thankful, because in Luke 22, and over in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 11, when talking about what was happening at the Lord's Supper, it said when he gave thanks, then he broke the bread, after he had given thanks, or eucharizo. This is a little side note, but I once, many years ago, um, kind of a silly story, but I worked in a Christian bookstore for 11 years as a manager, and we, had a, we got to see the entire church, every church in the valley, and every type of and flavor of Christianity flowed through this, um, through this location. And we sold Bibles, obviously. I used to joke that when people walk into a store, 
This is a, this is actually a joke. It's a retail fact. When you walk into a store, you go blind. But 80% of the people will turn right. That's why the cash register is always on the left. Because you turn right and, ooh, there's a big display. Cheap, cool, buy, new, going to get it. And you have big signs. Like we had massive letters on the wall. B-I-B-L-E-S. And people would walk up to the Bible section and go, do you sell Bibles here? <laughs> and I saw one of my staff actually do this. Oh, he got in so much trouble. The lady asked him the question. He goes, let me check. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> she was not, she knew we sold Bibles. She was saying, can you help me? Just in not the, the right, you know, parsing of the words. Why did I get off on that? Anyway, someone actually brought a Bible back and saying, you sold me a Catholic Bible. And I look at it and, no, this was not a Catholic Bible. Um, but in the back, in the Bible dictionary, it had the word Eucharist. And she goes, it has, it has Eucharist in it. That means it's a Catholic Bible. I went, you do know that's the Greek word for Thanksgiving. I don't care. I want a Protestant Bible. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Happy to help you. Um, anyway, I've got lots of stories about, uh, about our people. Um, but isn't it interesting? We just had communion this morning. Did you happen to notice that the verse that uh, has, uh, Elder Scott White read ended with the word from Psalm, I think it was 52.7, ended with the phrase, and give thanks? We missed that. We missed the connection to the Eucharist that we all had together because it is to give thanks for what Christ has done. As one commentator put it, there's a special weight to this word because it's a connection to the work of Christ on the cross by his blood and his body. So when you have him saying, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful, he's actually making a theological connection to something much greater than what you think this verse is about. We often will just slip right over a phrase like that. Go, yeah, and think, oh, yeah, that, I, I know. I'm supposed to say thank you. No, it's a lot more than that. In fact, it becomes a truth that a lack of thankfulness is the devil's handiwork. You're going, How, what do you mean by that? That's an awful bold statement. Let me just read you Romans 1, chapter, verse 21. For although they knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Whoa. In this you know, litany of the fall of people in their sinfulness, right at the core of it, 
They knew God, but they don't honor Him, and they don't say thank you. Okay, next time you come across a verse like that, stop and ask yourself, when was the last time I said thanks to God? Oh, wait, when was the last time I said thanks to anybody? As I wrote here, to be ungrateful to your fellow man or woman is callous. To be ungrateful to God, it's fatal. So Paul isn't saying something lightly here. We can very easily roll right past it and miss what he's trying to say. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness <laughs> in your hearts to God. Let's pull the verse apart a little bit. Let's look at the construction of the sentences. Our English translations and start with the word let. In other words, God is not going to send swat and kick down the door of your heart. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it in. You know, you're going to be resentful if you feel like the word of God is forced on you. You're going to say, well, you know, that's nice for you, but man, this is just getting annoying. How many famous Christians have you been reading about lately who have deconstructed, who have said, you know, the faith I grew up with, the faith I've actually been proclaiming from the stage, I no longer believe. It's just a bunch of hooey. And then they walk away. And unfortunately, a lot of them are um, role model idols to the average person who has been a fan of theirs or who has followed their teaching. That's scary. Some of them will say, well, I, I felt like it was forced on me when I was a kid. And I just went along. Okay? Examine that, if that is coming across in your own heart. Start looking at it and saying, all right, it may be. There may have been strictures. There may have been a, a strict upbringing. There have been, may have been various things that you were expected to do, but does that mean they were wrong? No. It just means you're being rebellious about something that you really know is right. So let's examine the heart. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. The Logos of Christos, the Word of God, the precious Scriptures. Now there's a parallel passage, which I'm going to refer to twice in this um, a segment. It's in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. So we've just read this passage. And chronologically, because that's our theme, is to study the Bible chronologically, there's discussions of whether Ephesians or Colossians was written first. I chose to go with Colossians and Philemon first because there are themes that are found again in the Ephesians, but it could be they were written very close to each other, and they were written to two different churches. 
close to each other, 100 miles apart, but they were written with different emphasis in mind. This ultimately is on, uh, Colossians is on who is Christ and how do you then live it? Ephesians is what is the church, in essence, just to simplify things. But in Ephesians 5, uh, it says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Sounds like the same thing. In fact, there are charts that I have found that lay them next to each other, and you can see the, the, the connection. Ephesians says, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. A, you could say that's an echo. Uh, there are some who separate the meaning of there, but that is a parallel passage. So I decided to look and dive into the riches of the Word of God. First thing, it says to let it dwell in you. Fascinating word. Anybody have a definition they want to give to me if someone dwells? They live it. It lives, whoever it is lives in you. Right. So let's be practical, as in non-spiritual. Let's just make this... I'm going to come live in your house. You're going to dwell with me. Yeah. Yeah, I am going to dwell with you. Do I get to rule your house? No. Well, maybe. <laughs> We're going to have to negotiate here. <laughs> but you see, it's that idea of letting them in and take residence and to dwell in you richly as in there is incredible benefit from this. It's, it, you know, let the word of Christ dwell in you poorly. I don't think that would have been a very encouraging word. I would rather not have something that's just going to suck my resources dry. I would rather have something that returns on the investment. Yes. The, the, the thought of dwell makes me think of sojourn hmm. as contrast. Com Explain. Sojourner to sojourn means you're here temporarily, you know. Ah, you're passing through. Rather than dwell means you're putting down roots. Very good. That's a really good comparison because a lot of people treat their faith as a drive-by. <laughs> they come in, visit for a while. Ah, it was nice to know you. It's time to get out. You know, you're the person that just won't leave the party. It's now two in the morning. Oh, we really are so happy we invited you. Can you leave? You know, the, you don't, but do people sometimes treat the word of God this way? I wrote down here, the word of God is not a crystal ball or a rabbit's foot. It's not rub the lantern and get what you want. It is a part of what you call you. If that word of Christ is dwelling in you and Christ is the fullness in you then that becomes what is expressed when you interact with others what is in you is what comes out of you 
So if your heart is full of the Bhagavad Gita, that's what's going to come out. If your heart is full of Netflix, that's what's going to come out. It's a simple principle. This is that encouragement here to rip out the word of God from a believer is to destroy the house. Matthew Henry put it very well. Sometimes Matthew Henry can be a little long in the tooth and you kind of go, well, that was interesting, but not applicable. He was the great commentator for the revolutionary uh, times, the early colonials. He was kind of the Chuck Swindoll of the era, if you want to call it that. But he wrote this on this passage. The word must dwell in us or keep house, not as a servant in a family who is under another's control, but as a master. That's why I asked the question, who rules? Now, if it's you and I, that's different. Yes, but if it's God coming in, you're kind of going, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to raise your refrigerator. Exactly. <laughs> but he comes, not, not as control, but as a master who has a right to prescribe to and direct all under his roof. We must take our instructions and direction from it and our portion of meat and strength, of grace and comfort in due season as from the master of the household. It must dwell in us that is always ready and at hand in everything and have due influence and use. We must be familiarly acquainted with it and know it for our own good. It must dwell in us richly, not only keep house in our hearts, but keeping a good house. Many have the word of Christ dwelling in them, but it dwells in them poorly. It has no force or influence. The soul prospers when the word of God dwells in us richly, when we have its abundance in us, and we are full of scripture and the grace of truth. Here's some admonitions found in scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 6. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. Deuteronomy 11, 18. Lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Joshua 1.8 The book of the law should not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Job 22, verses 21 and 22 Agree with God and be of peace. Thereby, good will there by God Thereby, good will come to you. Receive instructions from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. Psalm 1, verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Let me not wander from your commandments. I store up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. This richness, this abundance, Abundance. This is what the Word of God promises to us. 
And, you know, if you think about it, in the history of humanity, in the history of the, the, of the church, the history of Old Testament, New Testament, in particular in earlier eras, it was, literacy was not common. And so it defaulted to the church and the priests to read or interpret the scripture for those who couldn't read. Because they were educated to that. Unfortunately, over time, it started to get messy. And the power that those in that position had began to impose on these people. Uh, I've told you I've been reading a biography of Martin Luther, and it was kind of shocking when you realize that Martin Luther's work came right after the invention of the Gutenberg Press. And so his words could be repeated and printed and then distributed everywhere. And anybody who could read it, because he was writing in German and not in Latin, they were going, wait, what? Uh, this is odd. And it was a comment that struck me that even the priests had stopped reading the Bible. They were just administering the sacraments and taking care of the poor and the disadvantaged, but there was no study of the scripture at that time. And so you could see how things just got completely twisted. Here we are today, and I would say we have an abundance of content. What do you think? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when we had three channels and a UHF. And you could go turn it to the UHF and then spin the dial and wait for the fuzzy thing to get clear. And so you would be on channel 68. Oh, wow. Gilligan is sideways. Okay, well, we can watch that for a while. I mean, it, watching for the Jesse pattern at 5 o'clock? <laughs> exactly. The TV would shut off and a test pattern would come up. It wasn't 24-7. You didn't have ESPN. You didn't have the outrageous amount of material. And then the internet comes along and just exacerbates the problem. They also played the Star Spangled Banner at midnight. Oh, That's yeah. true. CBS yep. had Blessed is the Nation and God the Lord on all of their sites to right. tell us yeah, about, about four, 50 years ago. It's very fascinating. But now what do you do? What do you pick from? I mean, this is a big book. I mean, holy smoke. Oh, wait, holy Bible. Um, that's a lot to read. Yeah, yeah it is. I'm not, I'm not going to shy away from that. So do you just try to read it all in one setting, like it's a good John Grisham novel? You can. You can try. Um, uh, you probably won't do it in one setting. It's okay to take it in chunks. Uh, Tom has been talking about the McShane Bible reading program, one, the whole Bible in a year. Well, for some, you, you petered out on January 4th. I know you did. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was after the weekend, it was like, oh, I'm already behind. Forget it, I'll do it next year. Um, so I've been working on a, uh, on a project and one of the things that I've been trying to put in very succinct form is then how, how do we read and study the Bible? What, what is a way to go about it? Granted, a lot of this is going to be, you already know this, but let's just rehearse it again. For one thing, the first thing you do is look for the obvious. When you're reading the scripture, if that's what it says, then that's probably what it says. And then read it again, because it might strike you differently this time. And then read it again, and then again, and again. One fellow I came across, he said his way of doing Bible study is to pick a book of the Bible and read that book of the Bible every day for 30 days. Because it is a human psychological fact, as you do something for 30 days, it becomes a habit. Chrysostom had the book of Romans read to him every day in the last 10 years of his life. It was his favorite book of the Bible, and he had one of his acolytes read it to him as he was meditating and starting his day. Wow. It takes about 20 minutes. If you have a commute, guess what? You could have your device read it to you in 20 minutes. It's all there. There's a Bible app that's been downloaded a billion zillions of times. It's free in every translation in virtually every language of the world. And the audio, you just click the audio button and it reads it to you. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. And when you're reading or studying, investigate as you would anything that's important. We can read casual things and we kind of just skim over it. But if it's a contract that determines the future of your life, you're probably going to read every clause. And then you're going to ask your lawyer, what does that mean? Well, that's just standard language. Uh-huh, sure it is. Who benefits from it? Oh, you do. Uh-huh. And let's look at this again. What does that really mean? Well, when we come to the scripture, we pass right over something because it, we consider it unimportant or maybe not as impactful. Third, I put here, I said, speed is not essential. Slow reading is okay. Roll the words around on your tongue. Jeremiah said he ate them. Hmm. So was it fast food that you are done with it before you get out of the parking lot? You have literally just you know, vacuumed it into your body because you say food is fuel. Okay, the scripture is the word of God. Yes, it is fuel, but there's sometimes where you just savor it. Another way of looking at that is gold prospectors at first find the nuggets laying around under their feet. That, the early gold prospectors would be walking along some mountainous area in Alaska and go, oh, look at that shiny. <gasps> it's gold. Oh, my goodness. That means there's got to be gold up there because this is downstream. And so they go up there and they get their pickaxes, their shovels, and they begin digging. And then they find the big vein. 
The big vein wasn't laying down at the bottom of the hill. I just stumbled over it. Well, that's the first is the obvious, and then is the mining effort. It can take a long time. It's a lot of work, but the riches are extraordinary. Many times when you're reading scripture, this is one thing that pastors do when they're developing a sermon, is they will ask, what is the big idea here? That's a very contemporary phrase. But what is the one thing you want your constituents to walk away from? That is called a TED Talk. (laughs) Think about it. That's what those are all about. One big idea. And they'll do it in 10, 15, 20 minutes. And it's sometimes very memorable and easy to consume. But the big ideas are right there in front of you. We have always asked the question when we have gone through the scriptures all these years, especially when we were in some of the more obscure parts of the Old Testament, we would say, what in the world are we, why are we reading about the architecture of the temple and the kind of wood? Who cares? Seriously, come on, who cares? And we would ask the question, why is it here? Because we know it's here for a reason. It's our job to find that reason for this day at Camelback Bible Church, at this moment, with this piece of scripture, at this time. God put it here in front of us for a reason. You be reading something, you be reading freaky Ezekiel, and you're going, man, that guy was weird. Oh, wow. And you're kind of going, well, I don't understand it. I'm just going to move on. That means you probably should stop. There are plenty of resources out there, let me tell you. If you need some help, ask one of myself, ask Tom, some other teachers, and say, here are 17 online solid things that you can get for free if you want to study this. Great sermons are of tremendous help, and they're available. However, Typically, sermons have a particular point to them intended for the congregation to which they are being addressed. They might give you a good starting point. For example, what was the psalm we studied today? 128, okay. You just heard a good primer on Psalm 128, but you didn't dig that deep you let Pastor Jim do the digging. Now it's your job to go back to it and read it again. With that as the beginning beginning point. And then you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Because you will never exhaust the depths and the riches of the Word. Okay, so the verse continues. Yeah, we're only one third of the way, one quarter of the way through the verse. Um, It says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And the literal meaning is to provide instruction and to provide counsel. We see the word admonishing as a finger wag because that's how we use it in our English language. The Greek word is really more of a warning. So you teach and you warn. What have I just done? 
I said, if we're not being thankful, we're being, we're, to God, we're kind of insulting the creator of the universe. Maybe something we should rethink. That is admonishing, or that is providing counsel. And it's to one another. So if you find a friend or a compatriot where they may be going off in a way, you can kind of stand in front of their journey and go, might not be the best choice that you're making right now. You're not saying, stop, you bad person. You're saying, think about it. Because that path is fraught with danger. Either because I know because I've gone down the path before and I've had to be where I am because of what I went through. Please don't make that same mistake. Parents are really good about telling you that. Um, and we always ignore our parents. Um, it's a commandment somewhere. Um, no, I'm kidding. But to do it in Sophia, in all wisdom, that's the word there. Philosophy is, the friend, is to be friends or to study, the, to study wisdom. Then we come to the next part, to singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I thought it quite fun that in the bulletin today, there was the announcement of a psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs gathering in April. I went, wow, they didn't know I was teaching on this verse today. Here we are, it's a repeat. So I'm gonna ask you to turn to page two of the handout. And this is just, just a tad intentional overwhelming you. There's a purpose behind this. This is just the verse of, chap of, of 316. You see the Greek, you see the actual Greek, then you see the literal Greek written in English in the order in which you find those words in Greek. Then are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different translations, not including the King James. And you kind of go, uh, Steve, that's really cool and all that, but good for you. <laughs> Glad you have it, you're having fun. Why are we looking at it? Well, for one thing, this is what's behind everything that's done up here. When I get into a passage where it's hard to pull apart or I'm trying to grasp, this is what's, what is created so that I can come to you and say, well, that's what that means. But I want you to look at this for yourself because there's a difference between the ESV translation and the New American Standard that's actually rather critical. Now you're gonna look at it and go, well, why is this critical? I, maybe that's the wrong word. It's probably putting too much emphasis on the difference. But I want you to see something, and it's the challenge for Bible translators. The ESV reads, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and, and spiritual songs. It's suggesting that the teaching and admonishing is one thing and the singing is another, right? Just the construction of the sentence. There's a comma in between them and it puts the word singing in there when in the Greek, it's at the end of the sentence. It's the Greek word adontes. So if you look at the, up at the top, you'll see it's the last word on the second line. 
the New American Standard says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Suggesting that the teaching and admonishing uses the vehicle of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to affect the result. Now that's a difference. One is it's two separate things. We teach and we admonish. I write up on the board something cool and we all talk about it and then we go home and then we have a sing fest. Two separate things. Instead, the American Standards phraseology is saying that when we are singing, we are teaching and admonishing. Isn't that interesting? So, I'm going to ask you all a question and see if anybody has, without cheating, what were the songs we sang today in church? Anybody remember? It was only an hour ago. Ferris Lord Jesus, because that's a one we all know. But the other ones were not familiar, were they? There was one in the beginning called You Holy Angels Bright, but it was sung to a tune that we were familiar with. But the words, uh-uh. You realize what we sang to each other? My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my, by the, my Savior's name. Salvation through His blood. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and he died for me. We sang that to each other. That was verse 3 of the second song we sang to each other. The third song we sang to each other. Teach me, Lord. Teach me truly how to live that I may come to know Thee and Thy presence, serve Thee with gladness, and sing songs of praise to Thy glory. That was verse 2. And then we ended with Ferris Lord Jesus. Verse 3 said, Fair is the sunshine, yeah. Fair is the moonlight, yeah. I'm adding in the yeah because I'm thinking of the Beatles. <laughs> and all the twinkling starry host, Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angel, angels heaven can boast. That's what hymns do. And we didn't even remember saying those words an hour later. Isn't that... Oh, man, that makes you feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? It should... Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, obviously the psalms he's talking about, Old Testament books. The hymns, human compositions. You can look at Hannah's psalm, her song, I should say, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Exodus chapter 15 is Moses' song. Luke chapter 1 has the Magnificat from Mary. That's a song. And then the spiritual songs... There's been a lot of debate on what they, what Paul was actually meaning by spiritual songs. Something it means it means it's an expression of a, a spontaneous singing, where we just suddenly burst out in the song. 
Um, uh, there are others who are just simply meaning the songs of the Spirit, in other words, where the Spirit comes over you. But I have a number of thoughts on this whole thing. Tertullian, an early church father, said, In our Christian meetings, we have plenty of songs, verses, sentences, and proverbs. After hand-washing and bringing in the lights, each Christian is asked to stand forth and sing as best he can a hymn to God, either one of his own composing or one from the Holy Scripture. You ready to do that? So, solo time. Each one of us gets to sing something that we have come up with or we sing it from Scripture. You want to go, man, their services must have taken all day. Yeah? If you go to some other cultures, church takes all day. Uh, There was a time when Lisa and I were in a group, a singing group, and we went to Japan to perform and a church invited us to sing to their congregation and they brought in lunch. I mean, their service started at nine o'clock and it didn't end until everyone went home when the sun set. It was all day. And this is what they did every week. I'm going, wow, that's commitment. No, that's just, that's how they did church. Well, I started thinking about hymn books. I know Tom did a great piece. If, do you still have the recording on that yeah, somewhere? It's on, it's on your website? Go listen to it. Because it takes our hymnal and tries to show you the apparatus that's in it. You know, who wrote the psalm, when, what tune is being used. That's why we sang the one song today that was to a tune that we all knew, but it was different words. It's like singing Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island. (laughs) I know you're all doing it in your head. (laughs) Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, and now I see. Okay, you can do that. But the words are the same. So there was a pandemic exercise that I went through. Um, This my... My father passed away in 2012, and one of the items that I received was his hymn book. Now, my dad was an amazing man. He was a music minister, unpaid, for 50 years. He was a banker by day, music minister by night. And he would, he, he had very large programs. Uh, in the late 60s, around 1966 or so, 65, 66, the choir did an album. First Baptist Church Choir of Anchorage, Alaska. They were on television every week, live, in the 60s, with one camera stuck in the, in, you know, in the balcony, and they would just simply broadcast it live. So everything had to be regimented because... When the hour ended, the broadcast ended. So the pastor was in, and (laughs) it was done. So everything was very intentional. But the book that I was given was his Baptist hymnal. And in that Baptist hymnal were his notes on the hymns of when they were sung. So off in the corner would be, you know, 127. 
you know, in the year, so that he wouldn't be singing the same songs over and over again because people would forget, and there would be a, you know, we just did that one. And so I started going through it, and wherever he had a pencil mark, I realized I knew the song because I'd grown up with them. And there were hundreds of them. It was kind of astounding. And then it dawned on me, that hymn book, the hymn book that I grew up with was my first book of theology. I learned theology not from the Bible. I learned theology from the hymns that I learned, from the words that were sung. Warren Wiersbe said, I believe that congregations learn more theology, good or bad, from the songs they sing than from the sermons they hear. Think about that for a second. You know, for those of you who grew up and rock and roll became the thing, you actually know the lyrics of some pretty nasty songs. And they're in your brain forever. And it starts coming along and you realize, oh, I shouldn't be singing that out loud to my children. <laughs> oh, or well, there was a time once, I'll never forget this. I'm in the car with our oldest daughter, Tresina, when she was in high school. And I gave her control of the radio, fine. You know, she could listen to whatever she wanted. And we're driving down the road and she dives to the radio controls and bam, turns it off. Okay, and she goes, oh, those are bad words there, Daddy. You shouldn't hear them. <laughs> and I'm thinking, but you know what they are. <laughs> There's a problem here, <laughs> which created a wonderful conversation. But anyway, um, that's the power of music and the power of words, and we're not even really thinking about what we're saying. So... The pandemic exercise is I took every one of those hymns and I just began to put the text into a Word document. And then I began to rearrange the text according to the Westminster Catechism and the Baptist uh, Faith and Life. So the theology of the verses were reflecting the theology of the great confessions of the church. It's a fascinating thing. Now, granted, I petered out. It's a little harder than you think. Uh, but during the pandemic, we had nothing else to do. Uh, I wasn't teaching every week, and there were other things to do. But it made me think more and more about the words that we are singing on Sunday morning. There are times... Often, it's most more, more lately, it's because I start coughing when I sing. Uh, I don't, I'm not singing, I'm reading with the group. I'm hearing the voices, I might hum a little bit because I just uh, start heaving and end up having to leave the room, so I just don't do that. But I am reading these words, but I'm wondering how many in the room are actually reading them. Because it's just you know, kind of get through the song, and it, it's a nice hymn, and interesting. So here's a little bit of history of the hymn book. Um, this is one of a dozen books I have on the history of the hymn book. I brought this one because it was the thinnest one. Um, 
One of the early, the very first book ever printed in America was this book called the Bay Psalm Book. And I'm going to pass this around because it's a facsimile of the original. There are only 12, 11 of them left of the original first printing in 1640 in Massachusetts. It was their response that they didn't, because they didn't want to use the Book of Common Prayer anymore. Those bad British people. Um, They wanted to have something of their own. And when you open this up, you know, it's obviously very facsimile, and it's the old style of English. So an F is an S. So you'll see the word grass, and it's G-R-A-F-F. That was just the symbol for the word S back then. That's what the original King James was printed like. But this was intended to be sung. Here is the first two two verses of Psalm 23. The Lord to me a shepherd is. Want therefore shall not I. He in the folds of tender grass doth cause me down to lie. That's not the King James Bible. It's not the Geneva Bible. It's putting the entire Psalms in verse so it could be sung. So I'll start it here. You guys can just open it up. It's more for curiosity than anything else. And by the way, if you have an original from the printing, let somebody know because the last one sold for $14.3 million. It is one of the rarest books in all of American history because it was the first book printed in the U.S. um, in 1640. And how many did you say remain? They printed 1,700, but only 11 remain. Yeah, of the first printing. Anyway, so here's a little more interesting little thing. You know, when we open up our hymn book, if you ever do, you'll see music. You know, music wasn't in the hymn book until the late 1800s. All 2,000 years prior, hymn books were just the words. And there might be a notation to say which tune it should be sung to. And everybody knew the eight or nine tunes, you know, Gilligan's Island is a great one. But the meter of the poetry would fit that tune, and then everyone would know it, and they would all sing it together. So in Charles Spurgeon's church, he got very frustrated because there were two primary hymn books that were in use in Britain at the time, and they did not match. Page numbers didn't match, the order didn't match, the selections didn't match, and it was highly frustrating. In fact, you go back into history, and remember, people weren't reading their Bibles, people didn't have books and libraries, but homes that had a library had two books in it, a Bible and a hymn book. And that's what they carried around with them. That's what they went to church with, like this Bay Psalm book that I'm handing around. So Charles Spurgeon's church, they began talking about it and saying, you know, we need to create our own hymn book. And they did. Took them four years selecting the hymns for their hymn book. And I have it. This is obviously a recreation or a reprint, retype setting so you can see it. 
But there are 1,100 hymns in here, organized, not a single piece of music. But they could all turn to 414. For example, if you ever are looking at one of Spurgeon's sermons online, go to the end of the sermon, and they will list which hymns they sang that Sunday before. So here's another little interesting trivia bit. This will show you how far I went down this rabbit hole. In Spurgeon's church, they read the words first and then sang them. And he was roundly criticized by people saying, this is boring, we are already going to sing it. And he just said, no, people don't read the words. They need to read the theology of what we are about to sing, and then they would sing it. Well, I'll hand this one around too, just because you need to have something to keep you distracted from my rabbit trails. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? I recommend that you buy a copy of a hymn book for yourself if you don't have one in your house. If you want the one that our church uses, you can get one online. You know, Trinity, the Trinity Hymn Book. It's uh, probably about twenty dollars, twenty-five dollars. You can probably get a used one for five bucks. Very few people write in their hymn books, so they're usually pretty clean. Uh, John MacArthur's church has their own hymnal now, the Grace, uh, Grace to You hymn book, and it's really good. Uh, they've done some really good stuff with it. But I would say, go through a hymn book and mark the songs that you automatically recognize that you can sing. You'll probably mark all the Christmas ones and all the Thanksgiving ones. But then you kind of go, huh, I don't know that one. Well, move on to the next one. Go find those first. But then notice the subject headers at the top of the page, which tells you what is the theme here. If you like choruses and not the old hymns, you can find those lyrics online and put them in a journal and make it something you look at as part of your <coughs> devotional exercise. There are some choruses, some, notice that disclaimer, that are really, really brilliant. There are some that are not. So, just be discerning. A lot of ditto marks, that's right. <laughs> repeat, 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 79 times, you know, uh, and there's no parts. You can never sing parts in choruses, which is frustrating for someone who's a bass and always sings the bass part. Um, Sam Storms put it this way. He said, singing enables the soul to express deeply felt emotions that mere speaking cannot. Singing channels our energy, our spiritual energy in a way that nothing else can. Singing evokes an intensity of mind and spirit. It opens the door to ideas and feelings and affections that otherwise might remain forever imprisoned in the depths of one's heart. Singing gives focus and clarity to what words alone make fuzzy. It lifts our hearts to new heights of contemplation. It stirs our hope to unprecedented levels of expectancy and delight. I can only speak for myself, but I'm happy when I sing. My joy increases when it cries for an outlet, so I sing. When I'm touched with a renewed, sex, when I'm touched with a renewed sense of forgiveness, I sing. When God's grace shines again in my darkened path, I sing. 
When I'm lonely and long for intimacy, I sing. When I need respite from chaos of this world, I sing. Nothing else can do for me what music does. So those of you who are in choir, you're already doing this, but those of you who don't, you might think, well, I can't sing. Yes, you can. It may not be beautiful, according to worldly standards, but you're not singing for others. You're singing for God. And he thinks, uh, like a child, oh, you're so beautiful. You do so well. <laughs> Please don't do it outside. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> There's also a wonderful website called Hymnary, H-Y-M-N-A-R-Y, hymnary.org. And that free website, just go sign up to it. There's no cost. And it's every hymn book ever created, indexed by scripture reference, by song, by composer, by anything you can imagine. And if you don't know what the tune is, you can click and it'll play the music. Not with the words, just the music. And you go, oh, that's the tune. And then you can start singing it if you want to. It's kind of amazing. All right. And of course, it ends with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Yes? Psalms that we're going through right now are called the what? The songs of ascent. They're meant to be sung. All right. Then we end with verse 17. This is one of those verses that you should memorize and you should live. It's something that you can put under your signature every time you sign your name. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
in whatever you do, no exceptions. You can't say it's just business, like you're a mafia guy, before you do something sinful. Or you can't say, well, it's my day job, it's not church. You cannot live in a dichotomy like that. It will destroy you. There is no separation between the life of faith and the world. We are taught we live in this world, but we live differently. In whatever you do, in lip or life, word or deed, in what you say and what you do, do everything, absolutely everything, in the name of the Lord. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, it's kind of a weird example, but I'll just use it, because I couldn't come up with a better one. But I'm a literary agent, and the company is the Steve Lobby Agency. It has my name on it. Therefore, I have to be careful I mean, even the website address is my name. It's stevelobby.com. There's no hiding who runs this thing. And I want the five agents who work for me to act and operate with acumen and integrity. Why? Because my name's on the door. It reflects me. If they go out and do something nefarious, who gets the blame? Well, I should get the blame because I'm in charge. I should be overseeing that, make sure it doesn't happen. But there is that sense of, it's my name. It, is, it identifies a bit, in the sense of this concept, context, me. So what we do as Christians, Christ followers, Jesus followers, we are invoking His name in all that we do and all that we say. We carry the greatest name, Jesus Christ, with us. When we speak, it's in His name. When we act, it's in His name. And you can flip right down to verse 23 of Colossians 3 where it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as if for the Lord and not for men. Well, that adds to it. I'll have people will, you know, ask me in the publishing world, why are you so hard on us writers? I mean, just say yes. Don't critique it. Don't tell me it needs work. And I'm saying 323. Work for the Lord. It's excellence because we're representing His name. And if we send it out half-baked and really not that good, but we say, well, I'll buy it anyway because it's Christian, gag me. We've let that happen far too long. This is why the arts should be supported and so, you know, um, brought up, all forms of art. Because the, we can't just... Uh, was it Larry Norman had the song, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? I mean, this is, this is something we need to think about. We are representing the name of Christ. Micah 4 verse 5 says, For all the people walk in the name of its God, but we walk 
in the name of the Lord our God, the Yahweh our Elohim, forever and ever. That's what this verse means. So I want to end with a hymn, which we will all sing together. It's the third page of your handout. Is it Gilligan's Island? Hmm? Is it Gilligan's Island? It's not Gilligan's Island. Dang. Now you're gonna now I'm not gonna be able to sing it. <laughs> but let me read it first. And it's based on Colossians 3, which we are just ending. So we have spent four weeks on Colossians 3. Those of you who have been here for all of them, you know what the themes are. And listen to what this person has done in their writing. May the mind of Christ our Savior live in me from day to day. By His love and power controlling all that I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through His power. May the peace of God, my Father, rule my life in everything that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the water fills the sea. Him exalting self-abasing. This is victory. May I run the race before me strong and brave to face the foe, looking only to Jesus as I onward go. May His beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. And may they forget the channel and see only Him. Now, those of you who are in choir, you're going to have to help me get this started because I always mess up the first two or three notes in this because it's an odd uh, exchange. But it's, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His love and power controlling all I do and say. In my heart from hour to hour So that all may see I triumph All I do is power May the peace of God my Father Rule my life in everything That I may be calm to comfort Sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self abasing, this is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the Looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. May His beauty rest upon me 
as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. The beauty of your word, the richness of your word. Lord, we pray, we ask, we entreat you to let it dwell richly in us. That these words can become part of our everyday conversation and change the world around us in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.